Over the last two weeks, we've been going through the parts of chapter 5 where Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he's covered these topics, murder, adultery, divorce. Standard has been, for example, on murder. If you're angry, you're going to be subject to judgment. Adultery, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Divorce, basically only for marital unfaithfulness, Jesus says. Any type of divorce creates an adulterous situation. Last week, we covered oaths, Old Testament standard. There were certain ways to give oaths. Jesus saying, don't swear at all. Simply let yes be yes and your no be no. Retaliation. We spent quite a bit of time going through this whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth concept, as well as turning the other cheek and understanding what does that mean in context and how does that work practically for us as Christians. We ended on love for enemies. We ended on understanding that we're no different from anybody else, and that really is the point here. Jesus is setting us apart to be different, to reach to a higher standard. He's speaking to his followers. We'd be no different than anybody else if all we did was love the people who loved us and hated those who didn't like us. Anybody can do that. He's asking us to reach to a higher standard. Okay? So this was the word that we looked at last week, was that word entitlement. It seemed to creep into the last few weeks of what Jesus was asking, that even in places where you're rightfully entitled to something, go above, go beyond. And in other places, it was identifying in our own sinful nature how much we feel entitled to certain things. Tonight, I want to focus on a different word. The word is when. When. I want you to think, just take a moment and think about the use of this word in our language. You're, you're sitting on an airplane, get ready to land, and you hear the stewardess over the kind of the cabin announcement saying, we're approaching the airport, and if we land safely, we're going to be disembarking. Like, if? What do you mean if? Like, why is there an if in that statement? You get a new job, and you're sitting around with your coworkers, and one of them says, well, I can't wait for Friday, because if we get paid. Like, what do you mean if? Like, there shouldn't be an if in this statement, right? Because it shouldn't, shouldn't that be like when we get paid? How about a romantic relationship between two people that are engaged to get married, and the guy turns to the woman and says, well, if we make it. Like, isn't that the most romantic thing you could say to a girl? Like, well, if we make it. Like, if. That word, like, if, doesn't make sense. Like, don't you want to hear when we get married? Not if we get married. So unromantic. You're kind of on the wrong side of that argument immediately. Well, tonight we're looking at three passages where Jesus uses the word when. And the reason I'm kind of highlighting this word and making, maybe poking fun at it a little bit is because I think as Christians, we often insert the word if. We don't really read the word when as strongly in these passages. Here's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Let's read through chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Jesus talking about giving to the needy. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is an introductory statement that covers the next three sections. The unifying theme here is don't do your acts of righteousness before men. Starting in verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets 
as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That word reward keeps coming up over and over. We've talked about it before. I'm going to set it aside for a second. If you have questions about it, we can talk about that. But focusing on the concept of when you give to the needy. It doesn't seem like it's much of an option. It doesn't seem like there's an if you decide to give to the needy. It seems that Jesus, right from the beginning, is making a very clear point, an expectation that this is going to happen. You are, as my followers, going to give to the needy. And he talks about how to do it. So let's, let's get the how to do it out of the way easily. I think most of us know this passage well enough to know that we're not supposed to do it for self-gain, to basically put yourself up in front of people. You're supposed to do it in a humble posture. The expression he uses is an Eastern expression, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It kind of exaggerates how much in secret you're supposed to do your giving so that even your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, that would probably be impossible. But it's an expression to highlight it, to explain how secretive you should be. Anyone have a trouble with that? Everybody okay with that? That's an easy concept, I think. All right? I think all of us know how to have enough humility not to trumpet around our giving or, as we learn in our churches, at least enough to have false humility, at least to pretend like we don't want anybody to know. Just to kind of let it out secretly once in a while, but it slips out, you know. So we either know. I think in our culture, we know that probably the worst thing, you're not going to stand up and say, hey, I just gave a big fat check, right? We don't do that very often. Ryan? Uh, I kind of struggle with this a little bit, uh, just because, like, what does it mean when it says, uh, well, do you know how to announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues? So let's say, like, we're, we do a homeless ministry here in this group, and we go on the first week of every month, and let's say, you know, I go down to the homeless ministry, help out, and then I go, oh, yeah, man, everybody, I was kind of at the homeless ministry, like, hanging out, you know, and, and the group knows about it, but not, you know, like, how far do you take that? Is it just like, oh, do I not even tell people about it at all? Where's the line for it being a, a big deal to where you get your reward on earth? Or where's the line where you get your reward in heaven? Does it matter why you're doing it? Is the intent of how you announce it matter? Like, what if you're announcing it for two straight weeks because you're trying to get people to join the effort? Then that's a different thing. So you find a difference in it. Anyone agree? Disagree with that? I, def- I definitely agree. I mean, I think with this, the idea is, that first of all, they're announcing it with trumpets, and Jesus identifies them as hypocrites. So you have two things there that I think, like, he specifically, you know, like, if you're tuning around your trumpet, like, purposefully trying to say, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But I don't see it wrong as, like, especially, especially considering the context of this group and saying, hey, like, we'd love people to come along and you know, there are some cool things going on there and stuff like that to me seems to be something that's giving testimony, you know, like that's also calling people into what God is doing there and saying, hey, why don't you come join us? Do we all agree with that? Does that sound like, sound right? Philip? I just have a question because it's all like the motive thing I've struggled with for a long time. Like, 
that it seems to be important, because I agree that I think the motive is really what this passage seems to be talking about, is that if the motive is wrong in how you're doing the acts of righteousness, then you won't receive a reward because you're getting a reward by the attention you're getting, or it seems to be what it's saying. And then part of me struggles with actually a passage just like uh, in Mark where the disciples see this person like casting out demons and they're like, hey, this random person's casting out demons. He's like, oh, well, just, well, anyone who isn't against us has to be for us, so that's a good thing. Sort of like anyone who's doing something good, they're on my side, so don't stop them. So the motive doesn't matter. It seems to be with that passage is implying. That's what I would think. But those are two slightly different motives. I don't want to split hairs, but the motive that he's referring to here is the motive of like pointing to yourself for self-glorification. As opposed to, do they have a good motive in doing it, or do they have an evil motive in doing it? You may even have a good motive in giving. But if you couple that with a motive of self-glorification, it diminishes even the good motive you have. By the way, I don't think it erases the good motive. I don't think that you've not done any good. Of course, that person has eaten. But that's why he casts it in terms of rewards in a way, because he's almost saying, you've received your reward. You've negated that which would have been given to you for your good motive. You took it away, and like you correctly interpreted, because you cashed out early. You got your reward by people looking at you saying, what a great guy. I don't know. I mean, should you give anonymously? Like, say, I want to give $50 million to the construction of a new whatever, but I want it to say on the side, like, anonymous, you know? Wouldn't that be great, you know, to have, like, the anonymous science building? That would be your, like, where do you have your classes? I'm in anonymous hall. You know, that'd be great, <laughs> you know? I think the intent here, though, is do it so that nobody knows. So that one hand doesn't even know what the other hand is doing. Ryan, I think the thing you hit on is really important because all of us struggle with this. All of us struggle in all good things that we do to get to a point where you say, am I bragging about it so people know that I'm doing it? Or am I really trying to bring other people into it? Am I really trying to motivate others to join what it is that we're doing? In your homeless example, we all know that we're doing this thing. And if people go, hey, we all do it. And you tell people, I go every month and you should come with me. And you're trying to encourage people to go. I don't believe that what you're doing is trying to bring glory to yourself and point to yourself. But if I say, hey, we got this homeless thing, you go, yeah, I gave $500 for that, you know? You start telling every single person in the room after a while, somebody's like, that may not be the right attitude. Philip? Um, so the motives, I'm trying to understand, so the motives in this passage, basically for the rest of the, or at least most of the rest of the chapter, um, that it's being condemned is focusing on just a self-glorification motive. Because there can be other evil motives that, or wrong motives that aren't self-glorification, but this isn't directly talking about those. Yeah, notice the, the, the unifying theme that follows. It is be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. That's what he's really discussing. Okay, but let's get something else out of this that's even more important. I think all of us would understand, like I said, either how to be humble in posture in this way, or at least how to fake humility enough so that we're not really doing this. Here's the real problem. We're not given. That's the real issue. Most of us don't have the problem of bragging about our giving, probably because most of us are not giving. The expectation of God's people is when you give to the needy. Again, not an if, but a when. And Jesus is setting this up directly to his disciples in a teaching that I don't think is equivocal or conditional in any way. 
It's an expectation that he has that we're going to do it. He's just telling us how we're going to do it. But he's not describing if you do it. He's saying when you do it. And that's what I think needs to get to our heart tonight as we cover these three subjects. Most of us have just kind of said if. It's when. When we give to the needy. Why aren't we giving? Why don't we give? Statistics tell us, as you guys know, that the church on average, everybody included in the American church, given about 2 to 3% of their income. But the statistics for people under 25 are pretty dismal. People under 25 giving closer to, uh, I think the number is zero, zero of their income. Zero percent. This is a serious matter for God's people. So I'd like to know, since everybody in here is probably somewhere in that age range or below, what do you guys think? Why aren't we giving? Is it just because we read into it if, or I can't, or what's, what's the purpose? What's, what do you guys think? Yeah? Uh, under 25, just in college, you might not even have a job. You might not even be making money. And if you are, you should still give your, you know, at least your 10%. But if you're a student, sometimes you're like, oh, I can't afford it because I need, you know, books or I need to eat. I think that's probably true for people who might be in school. That's a certain pressure. I mean, you're borrowing money a lot of times, so you think like, you know, I should be getting back some, right? Instead of giving. Okay, maybe. Yeah? A lot of people under 25 aren't doing salary jobs. Okay, so how does that affect giving, though? Um, I think that like, it's when your income is different from one month to the next, it makes things tighter. Yeah. Do you see a, anything in here that says how much you're supposed to give, by the way? No. Another nurse is about an amount. It just says when you give to the needy. In fact, he's even describing who it is we're giving to. He's actually making a specific statement. It just seems to me we just kind of just skip right over this. Morgan? Personally, I still think ultimately it goes back to your entitlement because I've seen it rare with, okay, e- even taking the college choice and things where not as much money is coming in. Do those people still, and I mean, I'm as guilty as is it next, but like, you know, do I still go out to movies or eat out or, um, you know, buy a new pair of shoes or this or that? You know, I'm just very convinced that, that we may go to those and be like, well, I don't have that much coming in, but we'll still use our parents' money to do this or that, you know, for ourselves. Where I think ultimately there's, the strongest thing is still seeing money as ours and not God's. Okay, John? I think it's... I think it's easy not to give. I mean, it's easier to buy a CD or go eat with friends. And, you know, and yeah, it's, I think we live in a culture where it's right now instant gratification. Like, I'm not at a place where I can give, but, you know, yeah, I go out to lunch after church with, you know, my friends or go spend money on something else. You know, it's, it's easy not to give. But I mean, I think it's easy not to give because we don't see the really as much. Like, even... When you say, like, well, people tie it to the church, it's like, well, look, the churches are so needy. You know, no, they're really not. You know, like, and so we don't see that as much in a, um, a direct way. You know, like, yes, you can see things through news or, like, but since we don't experience it as much, I think it's very easy to not feel the need to give. Do you think we isolate ourselves, though? Because, I mean, even here in Azusa, like, I know of some homeless people, like, right now, like, I can... I could walk right now, you know, down a Lost Avenue and probably find some, you know, it's just part of our thing where sometimes I think we isolate ourselves from those that are literally five-minute walk from where we are. I think that's true. I think we, we numb ourselves. I think we anesthetize ourselves to the needs that are even global or local, both. I mean, we know that 
thousands of children will die, probably I think today, but it's just too big of a number, so we're numb to it, you know? I know that we know that there's families in our city right around us here uh, that maybe they're not even homeless, but they, can, they barely know how they're gonna make it through the next month. I think if we all had to go find one of those persons by next week, or else face a $10,000 fine, all of us would find one really quickly. We all could do it. It's just that maybe we're not motivated. Yeah. I just, um, I mean, like, where do you draw the line? Like, if I have a friend who, you know, they're like a single parent and they can't afford this and I'm helping them pay that, is that considered someone needy? I feel like we're always talking about some people. Yeah, I think it, we, we tend to just talk about those people because they're easy examples, but I believe there may be needy people in your own family. Okay. I believe there's needy people who need help that you don't know, that you do know, that are close to you, that you... I think it's easy to always pick the one example, uh, but I don't believe that's only the case. Well, what do you do with uh, people that are meeting by choice? Does Jesus' words have a condition, do you feel, attached to people who have made themselves? Like, what do you consider by choice? Like, somebody who won't help themselves? Coming from the jaded background, when I come out of a uh, drug addict, is uh, meeting by choice. And, you know, it's very selfish choice. So where do you start giving or what do you give? You know, that whole, that's a whole subculture of giving in a way. We touched on this a little bit, and I know some of you were left struggling with this. If you flip back just a couple of lines in Matthew, one of the things that Jesus was saying, starting in verse 40 of chapter 5, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I don't know if that fully answers the point because what it's saying is, yeah, I believe we have to go the extra mile. I believe that we have to give in every context, but I believe there has to be a measure of wisdom that we exercise if it's really going to harm the person by giving them something that's going to keep a cycle of dependence going, or maybe even a cycle of deception. But our problem is that we tend to focus too much on not giving. Like, I'd like to see that problem be more in the church, that we give so much that we're being counseled about how to be more careful in our giving. Because I think for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, that becomes an excuse not to give, as opposed to a genuine concern that we give correctly. I think once we get up and running and start to give the way that the Lord would have given, and I do believe the Lord would have given to that drug addict. How many times? Probably a lot of times. I don't think that's all he would have done. I think he would have met other needs. And that's where we sometimes want the short answer of just either giving or not giving and not really getting involved in that person's life at all. Because that's too messy. That's too messy for us to get involved in that way and to really get in there, which I think the Lord would not have hesitated. He would have gotten involved. Maybe that changes why he would have given and there would have been more healing in other ways. But even if that was our concern and we go, all right, let's just take people who are hurting themselves off the table. There's still a lot of needs in the world that we're not meeting. So from outside the Christian perspective, this is like an insane even concept because that last week's talk was so controversial and I got into this huge like conversation. So I'm going to represent the other side of it right now because she's not here. But... Um, Okay, the whole entitlement thing is really hard to let go of, especially like if you know, and like I said, you don't have that whole Christian perspective. So you're like, I work for my money, like why can't I do what I want with it? Or 
buy homeless people meals instead of giving them money or whatever, that's fine. But a point that was brought up to me was, I'm generous and I bless people and I take my friends out for lunch and I'll pay for them and I'll like do this for this person or you know people in my life. So I guess is that is there any validity to that at all in giving? Well, look, is there a validity to being generous, whether you believe in Jesus or not? Absolutely. Are you doing something right by being generous as opposed to greedy? Being like to give as opposed to be selfish? Of course. That's, that's, that's a central core that we should all strive for, right? It's, it follows almost that same like, what good are you if you love only those who love you? And I, if you take it to the money context, you're almost asking, what good is it? If you only are generous to those that you love, doesn't everybody do that? It's still a good thing. But Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. And on the entitlement point, I mean, read Psalm 24, 1. It, it says that everything belongs to the Lord. So when you're trying to explain to someone who isn't really a Christian, and you're like trying to explain like it's not just because God told us to, like... You know, like, it, I'm just trying to explain it, like, even to a deeper level. It's just really hard to explain if you're not a Christian. Like, God calls us to do it because we're supposed to be set apart. Well, I'm not a Christian, so I don't want to be set apart. Well, God, you know what I mean? Like, it's a really hard concept to, like... Even outside of a knowledge of God, we still see the evidence of God in these things. None of us chose the country or the parents to whom we were born. Right. That's God's providence. Regardless of whether you're going to believe in him or not, he believes in you. He gave us everything, including the choice of where we were going to be born, in a country. and We didn't get to choose that. So you or I or anybody in this room could have been the person who's sitting there without food, whether it's in the savannas of Africa or just the neighborhoods of Azusa. It doesn't matter. We could have been that person. And even if you don't acknowledge God's lordship over all of this, you have to acknowledge, what are you going to say, that even if it's just blind luck, that you ended up having all this, does that entitle us then to withhold it from others? And if the answer is yes, there are deeper issues going on there than just that I don't believe in God. At that point, it means that I believe in me to such an extent, and there's that entitlement again. That's really what it gets down to, is without even acknowledging the Lord's lordship, what you're really acknowledging is your own lordship and entitlement and that goes into like money that you make as a job you know what I mean like that was the hardest point for me to like try to talk about was like this is my job I work hard therefore I am entitled to my salary yeah in a country that would give you a job and give you a salary and give you an education and give you parents that paid for yours and mine and other people's right but I know people that are the greatest entrepreneurs in the world but they work to eat in other countries because there's no such thing as the job or they have a job one day and they don't have one the next day or even if they have a job they make 60 cents a day trying to figure out how it is they're going to buy the next meal that's the thing that I think gets down to whenever somebody's saying but I worked for the money it's like stop there all you did was receive the opportunity am I denying the value of hard work no that's why I, I wrestle with what David's saying because there are people and we know them who refuse to even take the opportunities they have in this country. So we're not trying to compare like other countries in here. There are people who just will not do it. And then they expect at some point that other people do it. That's a problem, but our love should be greater than that, if at all possible. Ryan. Uh, I think a lot of the problem too is like, yeah, there's a giving problem, but I find it the reason why uh, sometimes is because 
we're more worried about ourselves. Like I can have an extra hundred bucks, two hundred bucks in my bank account, and not give it to anybody. To just be like, oh, you know, I, I might have a bill coming up that I need to pay, or I might have something that's going to happen that I need to use it for. So I won't give, you know. And so it's just kind of one of those things to where I think this still focuses on the worry about what we have and what we're going to do, rather than looking at it. Jesus is going to talk to you in the same chapter when he talks about do not worrying. So I'm going to hold your comment for a minute. But I'm going to add this thing. Even if you worry and even if you need to save money, I think that some of the rest of you have pointed out how much we spend on other things is really a bigger point. Because even if you say, yeah, I need to save for tomorrow because I don't know what's coming, I'm not going to tell you that's unwise. What I'm going to tell you is save for tomorrow. But look at what you're spending today and figure out how much of that could have gone to the needy were we not feeling, as Chow's pointing out, that it's so easy for us just to fall into a place where it's just, it's just for me, I should have it. Right? I think we're focusing too much on just giving money. Yes. You can give a lot of other things. Um, for like the person that chooses to become a drug addict, you could give them information to become clean or something else, not just giving money. Okay, I agree with that comment 100%, and then I'm going to disagree with it. I agree with the sentiment and the comment. The reason I hammer money so much is because Again, if all of us were giving money and not giving time, I'd be hammering us on giving more time. All of us are so greedy with our money, we'll give our time, but we won't give our money. Not all of us, I can't say, because there are exceptions. Let me, let me not be so, so black and white on this. A lot of us would rather give time than money. Why? I'd like it to be for the reason you're talking about, because time sometimes can be more valuable and can lead to greater results. But a lot of us will give time so that we don't have to give money. So the first one, when you give. Plug in here for you to just go deeper. You guys know on our website we have, I think, five or six different talks just about the subject of money in the kingdom and, and how we're supposed to use money. And they go through different things like the practical tips about how to budget, how to figure things out so you can save and give more. It's too long to go into here, but the reason we did that whole series was because of commandments like this, and you're going to see it again in chapter 6 later on. We're going to come back to do not store your treasure on earth. So money is not going away. Jesus is going to talk about it quite a bit in chapter 6. So consider checking out those CDs or those, just download those podcasts because it's a great way for you to work through what am I supposed to do with money what is it for? How much can I make? Am I supposed to save? What about retirement? What should I give? How much should I give? All those things are addressed in one way or another from biblical text. So just consider that. Let's go forward. Here's another one. Verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Another when. Another, not if. Like, if you happen to have a few extra moments in your day and decide to pray. Most of us know this one. I think most of us feel the weight of this one. Maybe in guilt, if nothing else, right? 
Like, I'm not praying enough. I know I should be praying. I'm not praying enough. So pray in secret. Is that okay with everyone? Everybody okay with that? Does that mean don't pray out loud? Ever? I don't think that's what it means. But if the purpose of your prayer is to see, seem really holy, then maybe you should rethink that. Some of the common examples of this may be like, have you ever heard people like, you know, praying in all these big words or whatever it is? Like, that's not really good. Or maybe they're preaching through their prayer. You heard that? Like they, you know, like, let's pray. And then they start preaching. Oh, Lord, help these people to really know that they're supposed to be giving. They're not giving, Lord. You know, that's not a, is that a prayer? That's like preaching, you know? That's like repeating the message all over again. And maybe it means that. He's making specific reference to praying like the pagans with babbling language because that was kind of common. Two different forms were common at the time. One is you just like prayed like repetitively over and over and over and over just thinking that you could bug God into doing it. Although later we're going to see that there is an example of coming to him over and over in prayer, but not in some sort of magical incantation way. And there are other people who just repeated words over and over and over just because they thought the words themselves had meaning. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way that you pray. He gives us the model right here, and we all know it. It's the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says this then, and he's really connecting the concept. Instead of what I just said you shouldn't do, or should do in terms of praying in secret, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And again, as a reminder, as we talked about just a couple weeks ago, a very strong reminder at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Yeah. I need to bring it back to what does it mean to forgive? Because you can want to forgive with all of your heart and soul, and you might have a good moment where you're like, yes, I forgive you. And then you see that person, all the anger and what they did to you comes right back. And it's like a constant struggle, and you're like, Lord, help me, and you pray, and like, I know eventually you kind of let go of things and you move on, but that's just a function of time. So, like, in the meantime, what does that mean to forgive? I think that's a really good question because one of the things that I'm seeing about myself and about the church in general is a lot of false forgiveness. Oh, I forgive you. And you're harboring bitter thoughts and you're harboring, you know, anger and whatnot. Jesus calls us to, to forgive that day. And it seems to be the same where you think about that and you're like, oh, my God, is that even possible? Um, and sadly, I think because we're so, you know, because of entitlement, because of all these things, it may be very difficult. But what I do see about forgiveness is that we have to start entering into a process. I, I like to frame it, one, in, in the idea of the shalom of God, the peace of God, and reconciliation. And reconciliation, I mean, if you think of bigger things like marriage or divorces, like it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But one, I think there's open dialogue about it. So if you are, to me, if you are in a place with someone where... What if you can't dialogue with them? Yeah. I think you at least have to be entering into that in some way, whether it's at least first with God in your own heart, but you have to be moving towards that where you can at some point. See, I think forgiveness in a sense is surrendering your entitlement. But then don't confuse that with continuing to hurt. I mean, you may hurt for a while, 
over what has been done to you or even what you've done to somebody else. But you don't need to be in contact with that person to surrender your own sense of entitlement. Because what you're doing there is working on your own heart saying, Lord, why is it that I feel that I don't deserve to be sinned against? Now, some counselor would strike me down for saying this because I'm sure they have some sort of like, everyone deserves to have that, and maybe they do. But logically, in a sinful world, you're asking that you could sin against everybody else, but that nobody could sin against you. And that's the sense of entitlement that I think that even, I mean, Jesus was entitled, and yet he surrendered it on the cross and said, I forgive them for what they do. And he does deserve everything, and yet chose to surrender his own entitlement to be God in order that he might not only forgive the people who crucified him, but forgive all of us. Then the hurt is normal. I mean, I don't believe that you just go, well, I forgive you. I don't feel it anymore. That's, that's where I think it gets goofy. I think when we go, the part I can control is not feeling entitled in some way and surrendering to the Lord and hopefully to the other person, but at least to the Lord. And then saying, I'm still hurt by what's happened. And yes, some days the scab's going to come off. It's going to hurt again. It's a, it's, it feels like a fresh wound some days. And other days it feels like you're healing, but that's hurt. And if it's there, you know, if it lasts too long that it becomes unhealthy. But I'm sure there's people who know a heck of a lot more about counseling and forgiveness than I do. But that's what he's talking about in this context, this sermon over and over. That he's calling us that even when we're entitled to give that up to be set apart. Tim? You know, as, as human beings, we tend, to, we tend to look to each other, and especially in relationships. We, we want to trust each other, but then we get hurt. But the thing is, we're always looking to each other. And we don't, too often, we don't, even as Christians, we don't think about that we're failed beings. I mean, we're naturally sinners. But if you look to God to fill your cup first, and you look to Him for the forgiveness that you need for that other person, and then God's going to fill your cup. And then if you look to that other person, they're just going to overflow it, and you're not going to have to worry about it. But if you keep on just trying to focus on that other person, and everything that they can do for you, you're always going to be left, you know, with a cup half, a cup half empty. Morgan? You can immediately revert back to praying for your enemy, right? Like, that person, you're probably starting to view them as an enemy. Like, when's the last time I can remember? <laughs> I can't remember the last time someone was, I was mad at someone. I said, okay, I'm going to make a conscious effort to begin praying for them. And maybe that's where reconciliation begins. Yeah, and if we do pray for them, it goes something like this. We're like, oh, Lord, help them to see their evil ways. You know, help them to realize what they've done to me and help them to understand that, you know, they need you and they need to repent and come back to you and be more like me the way I am with you. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not helpful. Yeah. How do you, okay, when it's like a smaller thing or even like a semi-bigger thing, I can understand, but let's say that, you're raped, or like your parent leaves you, or you're abused, and like that. How do you forgive that person? Like, I just like I really struggle with that. Like, when it's a really big thing, how to find that sort of peace with that situation? You're looking for me to answer that? <laughs> well, that's the struggle with life. Like, there's no like, oh, we become a Christian, and if you know I get hurt by somebody, then I'm gonna automatically have a sense of I'm gonna forgive them, and everything's gonna be okay. And God's gonna give me these magic, magical powers. It's like, no, if someone hurts you, or someone kills your kid, or someone you know, rapes you or whatever, it's like, yeah, that's gonna, you're gonna have a hard time forgiving that person. That's, that's the reality of it. Well, like, I'm talking like... I think what you're saying is there's some things that are 
harder to forgive than others, which I agree with, but I don't think the how changes. This is why it's such a hard example when you take something like rape or murder. If I say to you, well, what makes you feel entitled not to be raped or murdered? It sounds so crazy to us, right? And, and that's not what I'm trying to say. Extrapolating to the only example I know of ultimate forgiveness being Jesus saying, they did flog and kill him, right? And he was still able to muster up that encouragement. If he's our model, what was it that allowed him to humbly descend from his own throne to be subjected to all of those things and forgive? And that's the thing that I think we search out. The how? I don't know how because if somebody killed my kid or raped somebody, I don't know that I would have the ability to do that. Or I could tell you that, oh, here's the simple Christian formula. Just do A, B, and C and you should be okay. In fact, kiss and make up. Let's just get this over with and move on. It's much more difficult than that, but I still believe the principle applies. I just don't know how it practically gets played out. That we somehow are taking that same thing and saying, I don't deserve this. And like Jesus could have said that and just left the whole thing alone. You're right. I'll tell you what you deserve. You deserve to die. You sinned, period. That's the deserved part of what you deserve. And a lot of us are thinking like, I can't believe this happened to me. and I can't forgive that person for doing this to me. And you may never in your whole life do anything anywhere near as horrible as what's been done to you. It's just hard to surrender that and say, nonetheless, I'm still a sinner. And I deserve death. Joe. I think the reason it's hard to surrender that is because we don't often feel like it's, there's going to be justice done. Like if there's something done wrong to me, I hold on to it because I don't feel like I'm going to see justice in my lifetime or I'm not going to be able to do anything that's going to balance the scales or whatever. But that's sometimes why it's hard But where does our need for justice come from? It comes from that same place, right? It comes from that same sense of entitlement and fairness. And by the way, it also comes from God's nature. But his justice differs sometimes than ours because it's tempered by other things like forgiveness, grace, mercy, it comes. But it's also absolute and never wrong in terms of the way it's administered. Our justice is imperfect. It may not come. It may come too harshly. It may not be enough. That's why I think the Lord says in some way justice belongs to him. He says vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's hard for us to trust that. To say that I may never see justice, but the Lord judges in the end and he repays. Can I rest in that? Would that be enough for me? I, I, I don't know. That's hard. Like if somebody did something that horrible to somebody, could I say, even if the legal system that we had let them off completely, that I rest in peace, that they're going to ultimately face God and that's going to be enough? I think most of us can't do that. But that starts to highlight our own need. Is it justice or is it retribution? Is it justice or retaliation? Is it justice or entitlement? Is it justice or just a lack of faith that there will be judgment and justice the way the Lord promises? That this life is still temporary, no matter how good they get off and live, it's still temporary. I'm starting to sense that some of the things that Jesus is calling us to a much higher standard than what we would otherwise tolerate, live with, or deserve. I have a question. Um, in that last verse there, um, like, I'm not sure, like, is that completely literal? So, like, if I choose, or not choose, or, like, or I choose not to forgive someone of a sin they do against me, God won't forgive my sin, so I go to hell? Like, because my sins aren't forgiven, in a sense, like, or Jesus doesn't cover them, like, isn't that what that's implying? 
It is what it's implying. And so, like, or so is that like a conditional like part of salvation? This is what I consider one of the warning passages in Scripture. There are several of them. There's some in Hebrews. There's some. This is one of them. All right. There's another one. Like for example, we're going to study like the one that says, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord," you know, those kind of warning passages. I think there's a reason they're included. It's to warn us and to freak us out a little bit that it's not that simple. We know that in direct teaching elsewhere, Jesus says, and, and numerous scriptures say, that the, the steps to salvation are not including making sure that you've forgiven everybody so that you yourself can be forgiven. But I think the purpose of these types of passages is to give us that kind of don't be so uh, smug in your salvation. Because salvation may be as simple as a John 3.16 type salvation. It may be as simple as anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that kind of salvation. But these warning passages always give us that tension because they reappear in several places. But if you looked at them as exactly literal, they would contradict numerous passages and we'd have a big problem with this. And since Jesus himself lays down a different standard, that can't be the way, at least we all hope. Maybe it's not in sequence there? It could mean that. And I'm not going to throw it out because we have a parable that parallels that. The parable of the unmerciful servant. Where the one servant is forgiven millions of dollars. And he cannot forgive a couple bucks to his fellow servant. And the penalty for having been so unmerciful is his own death. So even though he was pardoned of this great thing, the king brings him back and kills him. Right. Okay. So it parallels this kind of concept. But there's tension there. You're right. I mean, this, to answer your question, yes, you could take it to mean that, that if people are so missing the point and not able to forgive, maybe they've never gotten the point in the first place. I think that's what you're trying to say. And I think there is that flavor is in there somewhere. But I believe that if you took it completely literally and say that unless you've forgiven every single person, you're not forgiven, now you've set up a new standard for salvation, which means you've got to believe in Christ and make sure that you've forgiven every single person. The Lord's Prayer is a very rich text. I'm not going to go into it line by line here because we actually did a series on prayer that goes through the Lord's Prayer line by line. What Jesus is setting up here is a model for prayer. It's a model where he says, pray like this, or this is how you should pray. He's not meaning that you should just repeat the prayer over and over. He just said, don't do that in the previous section. He's saying, this is a model for how you should pray. There's a priority. Focus on God first, on his holiness. Then focus on the kingdom. Focus on his will being done. Then focus on your own needs, not wants. Needs. Your daily bread. Forgiving other people. As we ourselves are forgiven, talk about not being led into temptation. Every one of those lines is discussed in our series in prayer. Especially, the other thing is, if praying is as easy as talking to God, why do none of us want to do it? And that's the biggest mystery of prayer, in my opinion, is we always say to people, oh, it's like talking to your best friend. Well, there's no books written about how to go out with your friend on Friday night, but there's like thousands of books written on how to pray. So apparently it's not as easy as talking to your friend. For most of us, it's very difficult. Check out that series because it goes deeply into line by line onto the Lord's Prayer. Let's go to fasting. Again, when. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
How many of you are fasting for Lent? Give some up for Lent. What a spiritual crowd. All right, a couple people. You just violated this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Suckers. When you fast. One of the most ignored disciplines, I think, in Christianity is fasting. We just don't do it. We don't, we don't engage in fasting at all. Since we're in a season of Lent, we might as well just talk about it briefly. Is there a way, a prescribed way to fast? Nope. Is there a prescribed number of days? Nope. You have to do it a certain way? Nope. Do you have to do it? Well, Jesus assumed that you did. Not for Lent, by the way. That's something we made up. Jesus just assumed that we would fast. In fact, when he was asked by John's disciples, remember John's in prison, we kind of fast forward and read that part, John's disciples had said, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. Jesus in both passages assumed that we were going to fast. It's an expectation. It's kind of set up. When you do it, do it like this. This is the biggest one that we've replaced the word when, just, just written in if. If we get around to it, it might be a good idea to fast. Ryan. Fasting, like, for one, what does it do? Like, does it make you more spiritual or does it, like make you closer to God or is it just something that the Lord's just like, hey, you should do out of remembrance or whatever. And I mean, as far as like our heart condition with fasting, like, you know, yeah, I don't want to boast, but I'm doing the one thing. And I think it sucks. Like I, I hate it. Like, I don't think you're boasting. I don't, I don't, <laughs> you know, like I'm sitting here and it's like, dude, I don't like giving up certain things, you know, because I don't, I don't want to. It's like 40 days is a long time to be giving up something. And it's like, people start freaking out a little bit, you know, and it's like, yeah, it goes to show like, you know, how fickle we really are as human beings. But I just want to know like, what the main focus behind fasting really is, even if it's making us oh, in, a, in a worse mood, you know, like it's not supposed to make us all child. <laughs> okay. Wait, Monique, what did you want to add? Like always, not always, but it's really common that you fast for something. Like, I'm really serious about something, so I'm praying, please, Lord, hear my prayer. I'm fasting. Like, I've very often, often heard of fasting being used for needing something or asking something or for prayer to be supplement to prayer. Okay. Let me tell you what fasting is not for a moment. Maybe I'll tell you what it is. Going off of your comment, Monique, it's not a way of twisting God's arm. Fasting is not another magical incantation where your prayer has the extra spice on top of fasting. So it gets extra heard. It's like sending the prayer Federal Express. That's not what fasting is for. Although in the Bible, people pray and fast together. I mean, they rarely, you'll see examples of people who fast and don't pray. Fasting is not a way to twist the Lord's arm. Fasting is not a diet. Fasting is not also for psychological benefits. It's not just to flog yourself like a discipline, you know, so that you can beat yourself up. Fasting is a model that we see over and over where you give up something that's near to you and there's nothing nearer to us than food to substitute in time and prayer with the Lord. It's a discipline to draw us near to the Lord by giving something up in sacrifice so that we can actually spend that time or even just replace it in a way that it accompanies prayer. It could be for a season, it could be for a day, it could be for three days. 
Some of you have given up one thing for Lent. That's one way of fasting, like giving something up. Some of you have gone further, you know, in church history that people would either just give up meat, become vegetarian. Some people would go even further in some traditions, like the Eastern Orthodox rite, they would become vegan for the whole period of Lent or a longer period. Some people fast without food at all. And some people fast without food and water. Those hopefully are very short fasts, like a day or two, at the most three. We have only a couple of examples in the Bible of a supernatural fast that lasted at least in biblical numbers of 40 days. We already had that discussion about the number 40. But we only have three examples that I could think of, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, who went to that level of fasting from food and water for 40 days. But the purpose of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, if you see, was for them to spend time in prayer to usher in a major event. Moses ushering in the law, Elijah ushering in the prophetic years, and Jesus ushering in his ministry in the new covenant. So they're always accompanied by something. How do we use it? How do we fast? We fast to spend time before the Lord in prayer. And you may think, I'm not getting anything out of it. Is that what you're saying? Like, I've just well, been doing it, nothing out of it? I understand if you're giving up food for a day. But if you're doing one item, then you could still work around that. Even if you're a vegetarian, you're still eating. Yeah. You know, like, you're not taking that time to go, oh, well, I was supposed to eat meat today, so I'm going to, you know, <laughs> pray over my salary. Like, I mean... Let me, let me just give you two quick examples, okay? I'm going to blow all my points right now and tell you what I've been doing. So I just, like, there you go. I'm going to say it before men. I gave up the nectar of the gods for Lent, which is Diet Coke, which is like <laughs> the nectar of the gods, right? Every time I don't have that drink, a, there's something going on in my head where I'm remembering. So it's only, it's only one thing. But to me, it's life. No, I mean, <laughs> to me, it's that one thing, right? But it is reminding me of why I'm doing it, okay? That's number one. In another season of my life, I actually went an entire year being vegan as a fast, which was a very difficult thing. But at the same time, it was almost like a daily reminder because of the food choices you have to make that I was doing something to be set apart for the Lord. It wasn't in a season of discernment, although people do it during those times. I was trying to be set apart in a physical way so that hopefully in a spiritual way I could match it. Did I match it every single day? No. But it was like a constant reminder to try to bring me closer in that way where every time somebody asked me, like, why are you doing this crazy thing? I would kind of resist trying to put it out there as much as I would just say, I'm just following a spiritual discipline to be more set apart. Morgan? I think you bring up a great point because, I mean, I mean, John had asked me earlier today, you know, how's your fast going? What has it been? And I'm like, well, I haven't felt like this super spiritual charge. And they're like, I don't think it works like that. But I do think... Um, you know, even with, and I think it ties together some of the stuff we've been talking about, chapter 5 and even together, like, this idea of the union with God. Like, Jesus spent numerous hours, it was a regular routine of, of uniting himself with God. And, and the picture of Mark that he portrays of Jesus, like, Jesus is superhuman. You know, like, he's, we, we kind of, earlier, way earlier on, I think chapter 3, when we were talking about, like, that doctrine of, of you know, fully God and fully man. Um, you know, Mark has him saying, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, he's left in, like, utter shame, right? And you just see the humanity of Jesus. And so I think the reason that, one of the main reasons he was able to do things like that and to forgive the people as they nailed him to the cross is because he did things like these. And it's not an A plus B equals C. It's not, I'm not <laughs> saying that type of illegalism, but I am saying there's this deep union and intentional focus to, to just receive what God has for us. 
And I think Jesus did that. By the way, I would tell you, Ryan, that if um, like one thing is not really that tough of a thing, do two, do three. Like there's nothing that prevents you from giving up more. What I want you to do this week, if you can, is I want you to just think about fasting. We're going to come back and pick it up there. But what you're really scratching at is, well, if I don't know the purpose of what it's supposed to do, how do I know when I'm supposed to sense that I'm being called to do it? I want to leave that question with you for this week. See if you sense, when are we supposed to do that? And I'll come back and bring some thoughts on it too. I mean, it's clear that Jesus says you should do it. You tell me if you can think through that and come back with it. Okay. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast, not if. As young people, this is a place where we struggle a lot because we've inserted the word if. I'm going to encourage you to put back in the concept of when and live with that this week a little bit and find out where are we on that spectrum? How are we doing? If you need help with the money thing, check out those CDs. If you need help with the prayer thing, you want to go through Why is it so hard for me to pray? Why do I not want to talk to Jesus? Why do I have this great privilege and I just don't even want to use it? Why is this so hard for me? Check out our series on prayer. It tries to answer some of those questions and gives you the Lord's prayer as a model. And fasting, we'll pick up a little bit more next week and just talk about the reasons. Let's pray in silence. Wouldn't that be right? Like right now after... (laughs) Let's all go into our room and pray. No, all right, let's just pray and close up. Lord, we constantly marvel at the fact that we have to come back over and over to things that you've set for us as a standard. And that must mean that you know where our heart is because your words ignite a struggle in our heart. You know who we are. You know where our sin is. You know where our struggle is. And you even know where our hope is and how much we want to be more like you. Thank you, Lord, that you constantly amaze us with your word and you reach out to us. Thank you that there's nothing simple about a God like you that study you our whole lives, will try and will still be waiting to learn more when we spend eternity with you. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings that you give in our lives here. We recognize some of them tonight. May we keep them in mind. Pray this in your name. Amen.